The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly podcast brought to you by Reuters Breaking Views. I'm Rob Cox, the editor of Breaking Views, coming to you from Connecticut in the USA. Well, this week is a bit of a magic carpet ride with three different segments coming to you from our columnists in Melbourne, Hong Kong, London, and if you can believe it, New Orleans, Louisiana. First, I chatted with our U.S. editor, John Foley, who's working out of the Big Easy this week because, well, why the hell not? He analyzed the pay packages of the bosses of the biggest American banks, including Morgan Stanley, Goldman Sachs, and J.P. Morgan. His view is that bumper compensation during a year of the global plague is a pretty bad look. Whether that will lead to any sort of investor or political backlash, though, is, well, to be seen. After that, I hand the mic over to Anthony Curry in Melbourne to chat with Sharon Lamb in Hong Kong about C. Now, C is the Southeast Asian tech conglomerate you've probably never heard of, but whose shares have quintupled in the past year, giving the Singaporean company an eye-popping $127 billion market value. After that, we wing back to London, where our European editor, Peter Thal Larson, talks to Neil Unmack about the demise of Greensill Capital, the supply chain finance provider. Now, the firm's ructions may not be systemic, but they sure offer a fascinating window into this obscure niche of the financial markets. Give a listen. Greetings, John Foley. Where do I find you on this fine afternoon? I am currently in New Orleans, Rob, in the oh, deep, deep south. The Big Easy. The Big Easy. And, but you're writing about Wall Street from the south, and you wrote a pretty interesting piece this week, which looked at all of the pay packages that uh, accrued to the biggest bosses on Wall Street, from James Corman at Morgan Stanley uh, to Charlie Scharf at Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon. But you, and you came up with a, well, a pretty strong view, which I'm sure they would not necessarily agree with, which is that it's hard to justify the amount they were paid, given what happened in 2020, huh? It's really hard to justify. I mean, last year, we, we initially thought when COVID hit that it would be a disaster for Wall Street for trading desks and also for companies that basically lend to businesses and uh, consumers. And it turned out that the opposite was the case, right? Because markets were volatile. They swung around. The Fed propped up every kind of asset class you can think of. The Treasury pumped money into people's bank accounts. And actually, things turned out a lot better than they could have been for these big banks, and particularly for the ones that focus on Wall Street-style trading activity like Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley. And we were asking, oh, yeah, you know, what are they going to do with this windfall? Where's the money going to go? Are they going to share it with employees? Are they going to give it back to shareholders? Are they going to give it to customers? And it turns out that in some cases, quite a big chunk of it has gone to the CEOs. Um, so some, some CEOs, notably James Gorman at Morgan Stanley, has actually got a pay rise this year of $6 million. He's now earning $33 million a year. Uh, Jamie Dimon's managed to keep his pay flat at 31.5 million. He's, of course, the CEO of JP Morgan. Um, and it's really been a, a, a bumper year, which is kind of surprising. And it's going not necessarily going to play very well with Main Street, which is, of course, suffering uh, agonies of COVID still. Yeah, I mean, this is, so the, but I guess if I look at it, um, the argument for it would be to say, well, yes, um, it was a hard year on Main Street. But we are a Wall Street bank. We've, we manage our trading floors, you know, in such a way as to make money when, when, when things are bad or good, I suppose. But, and I look at a Morgan Stanley stock, you know, started 2020 at around 50 bucks and it ended the year at something like, uh, you know, $75. Uh, so, you know, and you can look at the number. I mean, 
that's probably the case with Goldman Sachs too. What, what would the, is that the argument that they put forward for why they're paid so much? That is an argument, and, and that is probably the best argument, certainly when you look at the direction of pay, is that, that it kind of roughly tracks performance. So yeah, Morgan Stanley did really well. It did much better than its peers. Its profit grew significantly, and it did two big deals. It bought two, an asset manager and a trading firm, E-Trade. So James Gorman can justify, in a sense, being paid more this year than he was last year. Goldman Sachs also did much better this year than last year. As it turns out, though, David Solomon at Goldman took a $10 million pay cut this year. But that wasn't because that was nothing to do with COVID. That was just because Goldman was embroiled in this Malaysian bribery scandal involving this fund called 1MDB. So, so 1MDB caught up year. with him and he uh, ended up. Uh, exactly. Otherwise, you would have expected that he'd have been up. Up that 10 minutes. It would have been flat. His pay would have been at least flat, they said. So, so in terms of the direction, that, that's definitely true. But you look at some banks where profit really collapsed and, and the CEO's pay really didn't go down very much at all. So JP, JP, Morgan's, JP Morgan's pre-tax profit was down um, about a fifth. Jamie Dimon's pay is flat. Wells Fargo's profit was down about 95%. Actually, more than that, I think it was about 98%. Um, in 2020. But Charlie Scharf, who of course is new and they want to keep him keen, got a pay cut of only about 13%. So it's it's fine to say that, you know, we're going to, we're going to give you credit when things go well, but you have to do on the flip side, the opposite. You have to say, look, when things aren't so good, you're going to have to take the pain with everyone else. And that doesn't seem to have happened here. Now you mentioned earlier, like, well, what about the, the, the rank and file of these, of these firms? They've done pretty well too. I mean, if you, I look Benef- compensation and benefits throughout the year. And I guess they're all getting their checks in the next, well, they were getting them this week or last week and last few weeks, right? When all of the banks, the average pay, um, just dividing simply what they paid overall by the number of employees they say they have went up. So the banks are paying people more. And actually, uh, some of these banks are doing more than they need to. Um, you know, Bank of America, for example, has brought in a minimum wage, um, which is higher than even the $15 that, that a lot of Democratic politicians are asking for at the moment. So, so they're, not, they're not being unkind to their employees. I guess the, the question is, when you look at some of the ratios that they also report, and we will only find these out later in the year, but the ratio of the CEO's pay to the median employee, I mean, these numbers are still kind of crazy. So you're looking at, um, for example, based on, on 2019's pay, um, you know, Bank of America's Brian Moynihan gets about 276 times as much as the median employee. Uh, James Gorman and Morgan Stanley is getting about 250 times. Um, and then obviously Jamie Dimon, who's, who's extremely well paid, is getting about 393 times the median employee's salary. It's just it's it's very difficult to justify saying that the CEO is working 393 times as hard or is 393 times smarter or better than his median employee. And I think those numbers really are a, a bit of a, a blot on, on the copybook of some of these banks. And so do you think there will actually be any, I don't know, uproar anywhere on this? Or is this, you know, investors, again, like we said before, stocks going up, stocks going up billions and billions of dollars. They're not going to begrudge another, you know, $6 million to James Gorman or uh, giving Jamie $31.5 million at James Gorman, yeah, yeah. right? But who would, so That's who's going to be about it? Well, when it comes to shareholders, this story is kind of a slow burn because every year there's a little bit of unease sometimes about, about the salaries. But really, uh, shareholders, of course, get to vote on this once a year at all the big banks. And they never, almost never reject the pay package. The last time that happened was 2012 at Citigroup. But you may start to get increasing numbers of investors. who, And bear in mind, these investors are also customers um, a, a lot of the time. So they may start to vote in greater numbers against these pay packages. Goldman Sachs 
had a bit of a slap in the face last year. It still passed, but it got a, a higher rejection rate than it had um, in previous years. The, the bigger worry really for them is, is politicians, because you now have a democratic uh, Congress, which is very focused on inequality. It's very focused on um, tax redistribution, trying to close some of those income gaps. And these income gaps on Wall Street are not closing. So it's just, it's, it's not a great look when taxpayers have really helped your businesses out through, um, you know, direct payments to consumers and the Fed being super generous in terms of property markets. It just doesn't look great when you paid yourself $33 million. And I think that's going to just cause them a lot of pain in terms of hearings, political brickbats, that kind of stuff. And shareholders may not love it either. Well, I, I made an argument early on in the crisis, the coronavirus crisis, when governments were effectively locking down economies, but handing a gift to many businesses that were able to function well or took advantage of it with digitalization and uh, delivery and that kind of thing. I suppose Wall Street, in a sense, also got a bit of a free pass from government um, dictates, but um, I don't hear anyone calling for withholding taxes or, you know, that kind of thing. Anyway, well, thank you. Thank you, John. We'll... Uh, have fun in New Orleans, or not too much fun. Thanks, Rob. Thanks, Rob. Uh, it's Anthony Curry here, speaking from Melbourne in Australia. And uh, with me on the phone, I've got Sharon Lamb up in Hong Kong. How are you doing, Sharon? Yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Good, thanks. So look, we're going to talk about a company you've written about a few times. It's now a $127 billion company and one that a lot of people may well not have heard of, although they will have heard of its products. And that company is C. Now, just fill us in quickly. What exactly is the company C? S-E-A, just for those who've never heard of it. <laughs> yeah, sure. So C is a Singapore-based Southeast Asian technology company that was founded by their, their founder and CEO, Forrest Lee. And they're known for their three biggest units. There's an e-commerce arm called Shopee, which is one of the top e-commerce portals in, in the Southeast Asian region. They have a videos games unit called Garena, which has traditionally been their cash cow, which is responsible for some of the very popular games, as you mentioned, like Free Fire for, for video gamers out there. And they also have financials, services, and digital payments arm, which is a bit smaller, uh, called C-Money. Okay. So... Um, yeah, I think uh, Free Fire is one. I, I did have to look this up. I'm not a gaming nerd, but I saw it's the yeah. most downloaded app game of last year. I think we've been saying before the pandemic that video gaming was going to be a big hit around the world. We had a prediction on that for the beginning of 2020. And so that's done pretty well, as you were saying. Also, e-commerce, unsurprisingly, has done well due to the pandemic. And the, the shares, remind me, the shares are up a lot over the past year. How much exactly? The shares have been a complete tear. They've quintupled um, from a year ago, and the company is now trading at about 14 times forward enterprise value to sales. And I think that it's been really trying to capitalize on this growth. In December, they had a follow-on issuance where they raised roughly a few billion, and so I think they've been starting to think about kind of other ventures as well. Right, and in fact, um, I think it's the, the, the piece you wrote earlier this week digs into a couple of those, and that's getting more into banking. Like you said, they've already got a payments arm, right? Yeah, that's right. So C was actually one of the two players who were awarded a digital, a full but digital bank license, not a wholesale one. Um, the other one being a consortium involving a telecoms company Singtel and Grab. Um, so, and this, and is so, in, this is in Singapore, right? That's right. Yeah, right. that's in Singapore. And so venturing into to banking, I think, can, can traditionally be quite risky given the new, new credit risks. But there are uh, a few things that actually make uh, this looked promising. Um, but first, actually, I think it's important to realize that they'll 
likely not be able to take share from certain banking incumbents like DBS, which is very entrenched and quite digital savvy. But what is promising for C is that they're sitting on a huge share of consumer data. So in the fourth quarter, Shopee, their e-commerce arm, processed nearly $12 billion in, in gross merchandise value. So that information can kind of give them further insights into consumer behavior. The customer acquisition costs will be fairly lower because they have such a right. sticky customer base. And because they have this data, they might be able to mitigate some of that risk when they start providing small loans, for instance, or even uh, financial products like insurance down the line. There's a, a degree of a natural progression here, having all this this data and financial information they've got from their customers on both Shopee and even, I suppose, from the, from, from the gaming arm, Garena. So that makes sense. Also, I think they're, they're, you also read they've gone into, or they've bought a bank in Indonesia as well. Is that right? Yeah, so in Indonesia, they've gotten approved from the regulator to acquire a, a local lender, which is Bank BKE. And what they're planning to do with that is to convert it into a digital lender, which is kind of the route that um, Indonesia is taking. As of now, the rules there are not totally clear, um, but there have been local media reports saying that, citing regulators that these banks could potentially have to hold 700 million um, in capital. And they would potentially be going up against Jago, for instance, which I believe Gojek, one of its main rivals, has a 22% stake in. So going into these, both in Indonesia and, and Singapore, they they seem like fairly big you know, endeavors to, to be taking on. But if you look at China, for instance, a lot of uh, the internet companies, even if you look at Alibaba, uh, Tencent, or even um, Japan's Rakuten, which originally was an e-commerce player, but then successfully pivoted into financial services have done something similar right. and they have been able to kind of leverage that data too. Right. And you, yes, you're right. You, you mentioned that the risk, not least the, the, the credit risks, but I suppose to some extent having bought this or being about to buy this bank in Indonesia, they will be getting some degree of expertise. And I, I must admit, I don't know the bank at all, but there will be something there in the bank that they can use to help uh, develop, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming. So that's not all they've been looking at. I mean, they've also been, in fact, this was just earlier this week, C announced a couple of other ventures that seem to be going a little bit further out of the comfort zone. So tell us about those. Sure. So I, I believe maybe late in 2019 started a foray into Brazil and, and also have start, since launched um, an app for, for Shopee in Mexico where they're focusing on cross-border sales. Um, and I assume they're kind of piloting these apps in Latin America to see how well they'll do. But it does seem to me like that might not be the best focus for them, especially since they're growing in Southeast Asia. They're trying to grow their clout and consolidate their positions in all these uh, desperate areas. Um, but then to then go on and try to compete in these very saturated markets like Mexico and Brazil, where there are already top market players like Argentina's Mercado Libre, for instance, is probably going to require a lot of cash burning and, and also could be a costly distraction even. Right. It's, it's also probably worth pointing out that, that C still isn't making money. It's losing money, although its revenue right. is doubling. Uh, the company said this week on its earnings. At the same point of which it also said they're getting into two other businesses that seem a little bit strange. So I think the, the analysts were predicting that their, their revenue would more than double. I think in, in terms of revenue, they slightly missed, but it's still up to $1.6 I believe. And their other units have also exceeded the recent guidance. But like you said, they're still you know quite loss-making. I think what was interesting in the earnings that, that was highlighted were, were two things. I think C mentioned that they would be launching an investment management unit called C Capital. And they actually acquired a Hong Kong licensed global investment management firm, and they plan to use about one billion capital to focus on their investments. 
And the second piece of news that they announced in their earnings is that they're also uh, starting an AI lab, an artificial intelligence lab, but um, it's still kind of kind of early days. It seems to be quite an ambitious undertaking for a company that has just only recently come into this newfound wealth. Yeah, I mean, yes, I mean, the, the AI and asset management division plus, you know, banking licenses plus let's get into Brazil. I mean, it's starting to sound like a, a bit too much of a conglomerate, which, you know, who knows, maybe it works out. Maybe they turn into a big dominant company. Maybe they find themselves having to revisit some of their ideas a bit later down the road. But look, we'll, we'll stop there. We'll see how C does in the future. I'm sure we'll come back to you for more information on that, Sharon. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to London, everybody. We're, this week, we're talking about a big story about a little company operating in the murkier parts of shadow, the shadow banking sector. It's a company called Greensill, um, which people probably may not have heard of, uh, or if you have heard of it, probably aware of the fact that there's been some questions for some time about this company, about how it operates and, and uh, about its future. But that story has really accelerated in the past week or so um, with the news that, first of all, Credit Suisse, the big Swiss bank, stopped froze some funds that were that were basically lending to Greensill, that were taking some of its assets. Um, and that has also prompted uh, other uh, uh, questions and other 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 stories. Um, as we speak uh, today on uh, Wednesday afternoon, uh, Greensill is in talks with Apollo, the big US private equity fund, about a possible rescue deal, which is sort of still moving around a bit. But there are other things uh, coming out as well. So um, following the story for us uh, uh, is Neil Unmack. Um, hi, Neil. Hi, Peter. Um, so Neil, you've been you've been looking at uh, the whole question of Greensill and also this whole related question of supply chain finance um, for a while. Um, what what can you tell us about Greensill? Uh, well, it's it's a company which um, has got very famous by doing something that is very very seems like it's a very old thing. Supply chain finance or invoice financing is something which probably goes back at least as far as ancient Rome. Um, and essentially when somebody raises money by selling upfront um, the payments that they're owed by their suppliers. Uh, Greensill, however, and that's, that's a fairly sort of um, boring standard part of finance that all the major banks do nowadays and is um, you know trillions of trillions of dollars in size. Greensill has grown incredibly quickly in the last few years through a particular um, subset of, of this industry called typically called reverse factoring. Um, uh, and that is essentially where um, uh, a big company or, or where a company will um, help its suppliers, um, well, essentially pay its suppliers by getting its suppliers to sell their um, the amount they are owed by that company to a bank or to an investor. So the traditional thing is, you supply a product, you, you issue an invoice, uh, but you're not going to get paid for 30 days or 60 days or whatever the number is. Mm -hmm. You take that invoice to a bank or another borrower, and they say, "Okay, we'll, we'll basically give you the money now for a certain, you know, for a certain discount. Um, mm. You get the money now. We take the invoice and we go and collect the money on the invoice." But what you're talking about is kind of the opposite of that. Is that actually a big company says? Uh, basically says to a bank, we'd like you to pay our uh, our suppliers on this date, and then we will pay you back at some point in the future, and you'll collect a fee on that, and basically yeah. 
so so it's essentially it's it's normally it's you, we think about invoice discounting as small companies using it to raise money when they're when they're supplying big companies, but in this case it's kind of flipped around and it's big companies borrowing uh, essentially off the money that they owe to um, small companies. Yes, that's right. And by doing that, they essentially spread out uh, the time over which they need to pay back those small companies. So typically from from a month to perhaps three months or even up to a year. Um, and the other the other benefit of, the, of that is that they are essentially raising long term money, but on their balance sheet, it still looks like simply a trade obligation. So that that obligation, that commitment to pay that they're making doesn't typically count as financial debt. OK, yeah, um, I was going to ask you why. Why would this make sense? But I can see that that might be an attractive thing for a company to do. Um, so 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 where does Greensill come in? How did they sort of muscle their way into this whole business? Well, so they what, what Greensill typically does is they will act as the initial purchaser and financier of, of the asset, and then they will then package it up, put it into turn it into a securitized bond and sell that to funds, money market funds. And that's typically where the likes of Credit Suisse or, or GAM would come in. Um, so they would they would they would um, take a small residual residual exposure to that claim. Um, and they they have grown very quickly by doing this kind of financing, but also doing it um, to some quite um, just quite quite particular clients. They, they do a lot of business with this uh, this come with with Sanjeev Gupta, the steel uh, magnate, um, and they'd really become a substantial financier of that business. Um, so they would. Um, I mean, the other sort of innovative thing that they did was to essentially place these these bonds into uh, money market type in, 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 into typically low risk funds held by corporate treasurers. And in order to do that, they would get a lot of these obligations guaranteed by third party insurers. So essentially, they would take what would be an obligation to a particular company and package it up in a way that makes it look low risk and acceptable to a much larger pool of investors. Okay, so and so and and they seem to, despite being kind of a quite a small company, they seem to have done a lot of this. And there were some big companies involved. Um, uh, you mentioned GAM, the fund manager. We talked about Credit Suisse, uh, Vodafone, the big mobile UK mobile phone operator, was also uh, involved um, in various ways in, in using Greensill Finance. And of course, SoftBank, uh, the big Japanese tech company, tech investor, came along and uh, bought a stake in in Greensill, but was also uh, using Greensill funds to, um, uh, to, to to finance some of its companies. So there's, a, there's some big people involved in this, not least of whom is David Cameron, the UK, former UK Prime Minister, who's a, who's an advisor to Greensill. So small company, complex stuff, but some big names. Um, so 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 basically, what happens now? Do you think, Neil? Uh, well, the, the 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 most immediate thing that happened this week was Credit Suisse freezing its funds, and that seems to have happened as a result of the credit insurers who have been guaranteeing a lot of the, the the credits that went into these into these funds is essentially getting nervous um, and reducing the, the coverage that they provided. Um, so those that and, and and that's that's essentially seems to have been the trigger um, that 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 means now that um, all of those supply chain financing programs are essentially stopped, um, and the companies that have been using them will need to find alternative ways of funding themselves. And and yeah, the, so the, the main so, so Greensill is in trouble. Uh, it's sort of some of this stuff is unraveling. Some of the companies that that they have sort of arranged financing for are scrambling to arrange alternative financing, which I guess is where Apollo gets in gets involved. So I mean, it looks. I mean, you never quite know with these things, but it looks like Greensill is in serious trouble and possibly 
even more serious trouble, uh, depending on how this unfolds. I guess the broader question is, what happens to this this overall business of reverse, you know, of supply chain finance, of reverse factoring? Mm -hmm. Is this a is, do you think this is a business that is sort of viable in a in a sort of more in a more kind of uh, stable mm. way? Certainly, in a, in a more boring way. Yes, I think I think whatever happens to Greensill now, um, it will be very clear that that for the for the for the, for the, for the it's it's sort of practice of packaging up supply chain credits into a low risk money market format and doing it in a massive way often with quite exotic hairy customers is you know is not is not going to continue so it's as, as well as this the steel magnet Sanjeev Gupta there was also the NMC health the uh, hospital operator that, that, that defaulted so um, essentially going forward you would have thought that the the, the, provi the ultimate providers of supply chain finance will be very nervous about what companies are actually included in these programs um, I think there will also be a much bigger stigma um, on the part of the companies that use supply chain financing because investors will say, well, why are you, you know, how much are you really doing it? And and why exactly are you doing it? Are you doing the, it to bring down your debt ratios or, or, or not? Right. But the reality is at the moment that the disclosure is really poor, right? I mean, there are a few companies, I think you wrote a piece about this a while ago, sort of unpacking this all. And, you know, there are a few companies that sort of voluntarily admit to using this stuff and, and spell out how much they use. But actually, for, for a creditor to a company, mm. it's quite hard to see how much of this financing they, they're doing. So but, but, maybe yeah. maybe one good thing that could come out of this is that is the companies, investors demand more disclosure from companies about, about how much of this financing they're using and that it just becomes a bit more transparent. I think that's definitely right. I mean, we've now we've now had three, at least three big um, financial scandals uh, involving this 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 technique. Um, there was Abengur a few years ago, Carillion in the UK, um, and now whatever happens to uh, to Greensill and its and its key customers. Um, and and I think after the Carillion crisis, we did see a bit more disclosure um, on the part of companies that do do supply chain finance, where they sort of put it in, um, not not don't count this stuff as debt, but include notes to their financial statements. And I think auditors in particular will be pushing where they do see substantial supply chain finance arrangements. They will be pushing companies to disclose much more. OK, so we're going to hear a lot more about Greensill, I think, probably over the coming days and weeks um, and, and, and the people involved with them. Uh, but we may also hear a bit more about supply chain finance and maybe it will become a bit less shadowy as a result of all of this. Neil, thank you for your time and uh, you. um, look forward to keeping up on this story. That's our show for the week. Thanks to our producer, Freddie Joyner in New York. Our final thanks go to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you go to get your podcast fixes. And check us out every day at breakingviews.com. Bye-bye.